0: Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of the Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Jake Darling, manager of Unicoi Outfitters. Jake shares his fly fishing journey, and we take a deep dive into North Georgia fishing and shoal bass. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And I'm excited to bring the business and consulting skills I've developed off the water to the Articulate Fly community. If you're in the industry and feel like you're leaving money on the table or the day-to-day grind of running your business is killing you, let me help you find a more profitable and enjoyable path in the sport. Head over to www.thearticulatefly.com slash consulting and let's start our conversation today. Now, on to our interview. Well, Jake, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thank you, Marvin. Excited to be here. Yeah, you bet. I'm excited to have you. And we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We like to ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory.
1: So my earliest fishing memory, um, I don't remember exactly how old I was. But what I do remember is that my dad and I were at a, there was a local pay-to-play trout pond and um i had a little bitty snoopy rod the rod couldn't have been any more than two feet long and when you came up to this uh trout pond they had um they fish with you know the cheese that you get in uh like the cracker sticks at the gas station that's in between liquefied and solid
0: I do. <laughs> um,
1: that That is what they used as bait. And you would ball it up and you'd put it on a hook and throw it out into this trout pond. And I was hooking these huge rainbows that were well over 20 inches. And they were literally just screaming the, the guts out of this little Snoopy rod that I had. And I remember my dad having to hold me by my belt loop to keep from getting dragged into the pond. And I thought it was the best thing ever. Cause we filled up our bucket and I remember my dad saying, we got to get out of here because you're going to break me. And, uh, and so that would be my first fishing memory
0: ever. Yeah. It's funny. I had a trout, uh, pond experience. It wasn't my first fishing trip, but I remember the whole discussion about, do you pay by time or do you pay by the pound?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You gotta take all of them home with you. And it gets pretty expensive pretty quick.
0: <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so Jake, when did you come to the dark side of fly fishing?
1: So my first fly fishing experience, my dad was a, a really big angler in general. He, you know, was a member of the bass club way back in the day. He conventional tackle fish, he fly fished, everything about him was fishing. And when I was in elementary school, we had a little john boat, and my dad would come pick me up from school. We'd go to a local lake, and we would brim and bass fish. And The first memory I have of, of fly fishing was when I buried a bet's popper in his back right between his shoulder blades. But I don't remember many details about that day other than him getting very frustrated because he had this big number four popper stuck right in the middle of his back that he couldn't reach, and I couldn't get out. So I'll tell you my first trout fishing, fly fishing experience. My dad was on a fishing trip um, in Michigan, and I was pretty young into the fly game. Um, I'd only been a couple of times. And my mom, I was pestering her to take me fishing. And so my mom took me to the Tallulah River um in northeast georgia it wasn't far from the house and i had an old fiberglass rod and i had um a martin reel and this was back in the day you remember the little plastic pieces that you used to use on the end of your fly line to connect your leader where you had uh you would slide your fly line through it and tie overhand knot and then you slide your leader through it and tie it overhand knot yeah i do yeah, so I had that on my rig. You know, we I thought we were big timing um, with the equipment that we had. And so I made a cast underneath this tree with a, a white brim popper because I didn't know any better. And the stock trout came up and ate it. And I set the hook on it. And I literally, like, froze. I didn't know what to do. And so I chunked the rod onto the sandbar that I was standing on. And I ran out to the tip of the rod, and I grabbed the line, and I literally started handlining the trout into me. And I landed him, and I was so proud of him that I put him on a stringer, and I literally walked him up and down the dirt road there at the Tallulah River like a dog, to the point that I wore the skin completely off of the fish. <laughs> <laughs> That would be my first fly fishing experience that I really remember.
0: Yeah, that's very neat. And, you know, as we like to say, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then. You know, who are some of the folks that have uh, mentored you on your fly fishing journey and what have they taught you?
1: Oh my, I mean, how much time do we have? All the time you need. <laughs> there's so many people. Um, a lot of people don't know this side of kind of my story and where I come from, but growing up, Um, we, my dad knew all the guys at the store, you know, my, every weekend we went to the shop, every weekend we were fishing. My dad was friends with the guys that worked at the shop. Um, he never worked in the industry. Um, but you know, we were constantly fishing. And so I grew up fishing around and with the guys who were making a living doing it. Um, way back, you know, this would have been mid-90s, mid to late 90s. Um, and so I, I grew up fishing with them. And when I was young, my dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he ended up passing away when I was 14. Um, so in that time there was a lot of guys that from the shop that were friends with my dad that literally stepped in almost as a father figure to me. Um, you know, a couple of guys, like I'm, I'm sure I'm going to miss a few or leave a few out, but some of them that jump out to me the most, um, would be a guy named Doug Weckmorland, which happened to be a really good friend of my dad's. My dad worked at, uh, well during the the last part of his life he worked at a uh car store in Commerce and Doug had a uh automotive shop there. And so Doug and my dad would fish together and and we would all go on camping trips. And Doug um he was a man of you know he he had a lot of integrity. And he knew a lot about fishing um, but the biggest attribute to Doug was he was always the one that was that was willing to lend a helping hand. And when my dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer, um, my dad told Doug, he said, you know, he said, I would like to go fishing with Jake one last time. And so Doug and my mom arranged for me and my dad to go fish on the same river where I caught my first trout ever on fly. And that was the last time that I fished with my father, um, before he passed. And I still talk to Doug to this day, um, off and on and we don't get to fish much together anymore, but he's still an important part of my life. Um, when my dad passed away, I remember they had the, the funeral service here at Carson Baptist Church right down the street. And we we're sitting there having the service. And I look across the back room. There's probably 15 or 20 guys standing back there that are all in blue jeans and fishing shirts. And it was all the guys from the shop. You know, that all the guys from Unicoi had come to my dad's funeral. And I remember... Jimmy walking up to my mom after it was over and, and he said, he said, don't worry, we're going to take care of him. And that's exactly what they did. You know, I mean, if, to name a few guys that were, you know, important to me. And, and when I was young in that time of need would, you know, number one, first and foremost would be Jimmy. Um, he's always been like a father figure to me. He's always been influential in in my career. And you won't find a guy that is any better than him. I mean, he is as good as they come, no question. Um, there was also a, a couple of guys in there, <clears throat> Julian Burr and John Browning. Um, those guys were guiding back then. Um and they took me fishing, they, you know, taught me about fishing. Um but I think more importantly, more than anything, you know, we were fishing because that's what brought us together. But there was a lot more to it. You know, they were teaching me more about life and what it meant to be a man. And these guys invited me into their hunting club. They invited me, you know, to hang out with their families. And so, you know, that that meant a whole lot to me. Um and having somebody that was that was willing to put their arm around me and say, you know, come on over and and uh and help me out along the way. Um you know, some others that come to mind would, you know, Jeff Derniak, um, you know, and right after my dad had passed, Jimmy and Jeff would take me and another young gentleman fishing. Um you know, when I was young, you know, Henry Cowan, he I didn't know Henry, Henry didn't know me. But um the first time I met Henry, he has a a very strong draw toward, you know, people want to be around him. Uh he's a lot of fun. He's a good guy. And I just remember um him taking me fishing when I was younger, and we just kind of hit it off from there. You know, he was calling the store, we were chatting. Um I talked to Henry Gosh, probably two or three times a week now, still in my life. And, you know, he's always kind of giving me advice or helping me connect with people. Um, So, always, he's always willing to go out of his way to um, help me better my career. Um, You know, there's a couple other guys at the shop. Dell Waters official my dad John Cross he was the manager at Unicoi he's the one who gave me my start at a young age um a few other a few other guys in there that were guiding that they just kind of took time out of their life to take me um you know take me fishing and and just kind of shape me and mold me into to what I became
0: yeah. It's it's absolutely fantastic and I mean I always say the um the fly fishing community is probably one of the most generous communities of people I think I know on the planet. There's
1: no question. Um I mean everybody that you meet are down to earth, humble people that are more than willing to
0: help somebody out. Yeah. I'll give you a funny Henry story. Henry called me on my birthday and saying happy birthday to me. <laughs> Oh, did he? Yeah, he did. Um,
1: <laughs> he just did the same thing to me a couple of weeks ago.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's all good stuff. And so, you know, you're starting your fly fishing journey. I, you know, I think I was telling you before we started recording, I think the last time I saw you was probably, I don't know, gosh, probably 10 plus years ago in the shop. And um, I think probably around that time you were uh, doing the team uh, stonefly thing. And I was kind of curious about uh, – you know, kind of what the competitive fishing experience was like and, you know, how it impacted your future fishing.
1: Yeah. Um, I enjoyed the competitive fishing. I come, you know, so I, I played soccer growing up and I actually had a scholarship to play in college and so I always had that competitive side. Um, I was a, a lot younger and so I probably was more competitive than I am now. Um, but I got a call from Gordon Vanderpool one evening and he invited me to come and uh and try out for the team, so to speak. And they were just forming the team up. And so uh I came and and fished with them and ended up joining the team and um <clears throat> when I first got into it was I don't know if you remember or not, but they used to have a casting competition to get into the fishing aspect. Do you remember that?
0: That I don't remember.
1: Okay. Yeah. So they had, uh, uh, basically way back when you would show up and, and cast and say there was 30 anglers and the top, they would take the top 20 and they had accuracy and distance and, uh, and, and- and the first tournament I showed up at, I didn't make the casting cut. I didn't get to fish. Uh, it was on the, the broad river there that feeds into Lake Lure. And it was a really humbling moment because, you know, here I was surrounded by all these great anglers. And I thought that I was really good. And I didn't even get to fish because I didn't make the cut. Um, but I liked that format. You know, I went home and, and started practicing casting. And I like that format because what uh, what the way it was formatted was, however you placed in the casting competition, was who got to pick what bead of water they wanted to fish. And so you know, I I think that to be a a good angler, there is definitely some element of casting involved in it. Um, but anyhow, later on they kind of switched switched uh, how it was formatted, and the biggest thing that it taught me. Um, was how to best use your time on the water because you're on limited time and, and you're trying to score the highest points that you can. Um, And it also taught me to how to fish water that is in front of you effectively, even though it may not be the best water on the stream, this is the hand you're dealt right now. And so how do you approach this water and how do you fish this water to get the most out of it?
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting because, you know, I, I know some people don't like comp fishing, but I always kind of equate it to like the, they're sort of like the the Formula One team for the automobile manufacturers. And, um you know, that I always think of those guys as kind of being on the front line of solving fishing problems.
1: Yeah. I mean, there was some some really solid sticks that were fishing back then. I mean, guys that were really talented.
0: Yeah, I'm just trying to think. So uh, let's see, who would have some of those folks been? Like Michael Yelton was probably one of them, right?
1: Michael Yelton. Um, Josh. Uh, oh, gosh. What is Josh's last name? It's not uh, Josh Grafton. Um, gosh, it'll probably come to me a little bit. Um, Gordon Vanderpool, the guy, you know, I fished a fair amount of, of, uh, team tournaments and I fished with a guy named Chris Smith. Um, that would be, I mean, that's gosh, that's been a long time ago. That's probably the first names that come to mind to me. Just the guys that I was closest to.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I've, uh, I've gotten a chance to fish with Gordon over the years. And, uh, I mean, it's a pretty amazing thing to be on the water with him.
1: Yeah, he is a a very talented fisherman. Yeah. And he can always wade to where you can because he's like six foot seven. Yeah,
0: and he's a big dude, so he can like go fish the other side of the ripping current too, right?
1: Yes, yes,
0: (laughs) yes. (laughs) So, uh, at what point of your fly fishing journey did you get the guide bug?
1: So, when I decided it was what I wanted to do, um, I got a scholarship to play college at Emmanuel college and my freshman year, the, the high school team I come from was, was pretty good team. And my freshman year I showed up and, and it had come, it had become more like a job. Um, and we kind of split this season. I think we were like 10 and 10 and I'm sitting there and, and there wasn't really anything that I wanted to study. And, uh, <clears throat> So I I walked into my coach's office and I said, hey, I said, uh, you don't have to worry about working me up a scholarship for next year. I'm not going to be here. And uh, he said, "Okay." so what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to go back home and I'm going to get in the fishing industry and I'm going to go to school at night and I'm going to study business. And he literally laughed at me. Um, And when I came home. It was full bore guiding
0: from that point on yeah and so did you kind of break into that part of the game like through unicoid or did you kind of start doing something else and then migrate to the shop later
1: no um everything i've ever done has all been through unicoid um i mean i guess it was kind of it it was destined to happen i mean i i grown up around those guys i faced with them um as a young teenager, all the way up. And so, I mean, when, when it come time that I decided that that's what I wanted to do, then that's who I went to. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Got it. And so, you know, I know you mentioned a bunch of folks. You mentioned those guys earlier in terms of fly fishing mentors, kind of any new guide mentors uh, that you want to give a shout out to?
1: Uh, like in today? hmm Yeah. So, I mean, I'm still... I'm I'm gravitated towards those uh what I call the OGs. Um the guys that kind of paved the way for everybody else to to have an opportunity. The guys that were doing it before it was cool. Um so I kind of put my myself in in that group of guys with the the older guys. So I think they have a lot of wisdom. Um they're all very honest, hardworking guys that have always done everything, uh, ethically. And I respect that.
0: Yeah. I think the other thing too, right, is kind of the older guys didn't have the internet. So, I mean, they really had to figure stuff out and you couldn't buy everything you needed to be successful.
1: No, no. I mean, I remember when we started fishing, um, you know, we had uh, glacier glove waders that, uh the feet were made of um nylon and they were pointy like tinkerbell shoes. You know, they didn't have Sims Gore-Tex waders back then.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I interviewed uh Kevin Howell and he was telling me that his dad and uncle used to buy Vietnam era uh surplus combat boots, and mm-hmm. uh they would grind the soles off of them and glue felt to them, and that's how they made the first wading boots. <laughs> Yeah,
1: it was a lot different back then.
0: Yeah, and he said, you know, the waiters were so bad that you started wet wading in March and uh mm-hmm. you know, just different kind of a different game, but everybody figured it out, right? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Jake, what do you think's the the um the secret to being a good guide?
1: Yeah, so I kind of got four main things that I think are the secret to being a good guide. Um I think if you look at all the these successful guides in the industry, they all have the same characteristics to them. Um, First one for me is just being able to have the ability to formulate a day that's going to cater to your client's needs or wants. Um, And a lot of times that's on somewhat short notice. Um, You know, somebody walks in for a trip and you meet them and and they may be like, hey, you know, I want to really work on... Uh, My streamer fishing today, or I would like to learn how to dry dropper fish, or if you have some time, can you teach me how to double haul? Or you know, just whatever they want. Being flexible and being able to tailor a day to to them and how they what is going to be a success to them, I think is the most important thing. Um, Secondly, I think that you know, being able to offer a memorable experience—they're there for an experience yes the fishing is something they're interested in but overall they want to have a good experience and i think that's you know through entertainment through conversations with your customers and kind of getting to know them um more so than just fishing together and and watching your watch and waiting on four hours or eight hours to be over so that you can be on to the next one you know some of my best friends that I almost treat you know that that they're like family to me or some of my clients and we met through fishing but now we um you know we talk to each other a whole lot more than we fish and we care about what's going on in each other's lives so just building that relationship with them um you know another thing that that comes to mind would be patience I think as a guide you have to be very patient and understand that We all started in the same place, even though you're a guide now and you're very knowledgeable about what you do. There was a time that you didn't know anything, you know, I didn't know anything about fishing. Um, I didn't know which end of the rod to hold, where to start. I was overwhelmed and somebody, you know, went to help me me kind of gain a knowledge of what was going on. And then the last thing I would say is you got to be really good at what you do. You got to be good at teaching. You got to be good at catching fish, but you got to be able to make that not be the focal point of the day.
0: Yeah, got it. And uh, Jake, what do you think is the biggest misconception people have about the life of a fishing guide?
1: The thing we hear often is you got it made. You get to go fishing every day. And uh, it's it's not like that. Um, yes, we get to spend a lot of time on the water. Um, we get to fish through other people. Uh, we get to enjoy those experiences with them. But there's a lot of prep work that goes into the trip. You know, the the only side that um, the customer may see is the, the eight hours that you spend in the boat. Um, why y'all are together but an eight-hour day is really more like a 12-hour day because you've got to get up you've got to you know you have to prep the equipment you have to prep the lunches you have to wash the boat you have to travel to the river you got to put it in the water you got to run the shuttle and then when you get home you got to clean it all up and you got to get going for the next day so there's a lot of work that that goes into it um And even preparation, you know, when you're not working, when you're not on the water, you're always out. You're always keeping track with what's going on with the fish. Um, You're always exploring new places, something that may be uh, a new offering that you can offer to your clients. So, you know, there's always something going on um, in building your brand
0: yeah absolutely, and that's you know, and then you got the multi day guys, you're gonna probably end up having dinner with them at least once, right? <laughs> yeah yeah definitely, yeah, and so you know I understand that now you primarily guide for bass, and I was kind of curious what drew you to bass over trout,
1: yeah, so my guiding career um I did my first guide trip by accident, um and then when I came back from college i got into it and I was wade fishing for trout. And then I migrated to where I was float fishing on the Tokoa River and the Tuckasiji River for trout. And then I met my girlfriend at the time, which is now my wife. She was from over in that area. So I was still spending a lot of time guiding over on the Tokoa. And then when we were going to get married and she moved here, um I kind of was looking for something more localized I was driving like 140 miles of round trip each day to go fish um and so I was literally getting up and leaving the house at like 5 30 and getting home at 7 30 and it was just a lot going on and I wanted to do something that was different to kind of differentiate myself from from other guides and landed on the shoal bass thing and uh, I grew up in the area, I fished the river a little bit um, when I was younger, but not a ton Then started fishing it more and more. And then when I made the transition back here to to guiding locally, um, that's kind of when I gravitated more towards the shoal bass.
0: Yeah, got it. And so, you know, what makes them such an attractive species to chase on the fly?
1: The shoal bass tell a cool story. Um, I mean, you're talking about a fish that is a very limited range fish. It's not like you can go anywhere in the world and do it. They live in a really pretty environment. I mean there's nothing better than like late spring dropping in and having <clears throat> the rhododendron and mountain laurel blooming all on the banks and and the habitat that they live in um you know the arena just feels right. It's what I like um you know, and, and the way they eat a fly, they're, a, they're an ambush fish. They're going to get under something, and they're going to wait for something to come by, and, and they're going to run out and grab it. So most of the time, the eats are visual. I like that. Um, and I like, they're, they're very migratory fish. Um, you know, they're, they're constantly moving for seasonal changes. And I like that factor to where when I slide the boat in the water every day, I've got to go hunt them. It's not going to be like it was yesterday. It's not going to be like it was this time last year. So I like that factor of, of having to put the pieces of the puzzle together every day.
0: Yeah, pretty neat. How do they compare to smallmouth?
1: I would say a shoal bass is everything that a smallmouth is. They just don't jump. Um, they pound for pound. They pull just as hard a smallmouth. They're just not an aerial fish. They're gonna pull their sleeves up and they're gonna come to the boat and they're gonna fight you at the boat. Um, but they they dig really hard. They're visual Peter, so it's you know typically a clear water deal. and You get to see it all happen.
0: Yeah, I always think it's a fun to like in my part of the world to fish for smallmouth with like a white game changer and like one minute you see it and then the next minute it's gone. <laughs>
1: that's the best bite when you see your fly coming and it, and it goes like four feet to the left or the right, or it just completely blacks out. Yeah. I mean, it it never gets old. Yeah. I I do it every day.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, Jake, what's the typical kind of shoal bass season look like?
1: Yeah. So we start fishing. They're warm blooded fish. They like warm weather. We start fishing late spring, uh, when the fish are pre-spawned. And usually that time of year, we got pretty good flows. Um, a lot of streamer fishing, intermediate lines, sink tips, eight weight, seven, eight weight, uh, a lot of game changers, any, any kind of swim fly stuff. Um, then post spawn, <clears throat> you know, I, I, usually won't fish a whole lot during the spawn. I kind of leave them alone just because it's such a fragile resource. Um, I kind of let them do their thing. Um, and then in the summer, we start fishing topwater bugs, and that's usually six-way on floating line. It can be a, a lot of different types of surface bugs. Um, and then we slide into fall and things start cooling down. Fish start feeding them back up for the winter and start, you know, kind of transitioning back to our streamer fishing again.
0: Yeah. So it does sound a lot like a kind of a smallmouth bite, I would imagine, right? You probably get to fish for them a little earlier than some folks do and probably— you know, get to fish pretty lakes. because you're a pretty mild climate, right? hmm Yeah. And, and so, Jake, in terms of tackle, you know, what would be kind of a typical kind of rod-reel, fly-line combo if people wanted to chase shoal bass?
1: Yeah, so really, i say you have to have two combos. If you want to fish the whole season, um, you should fish a six with a floating line a lot. Um, use that with uh, some kind of topwater bug and then we'll fish seven and eights with intermediate succinct tips on them and and that's what we're streamer fishing with
0: yeah and on the bug presentation do they like animation or is it kind of like what we do up here in the summertime where we plop that cicada down and just let it drift until somebody eats it Mm -hmm.
1: yeah i think it depends on what time of year you're you're topwater bugging um early season there's more water they like it to move a lot more and you get a lot splashier bite i think that's more of a reactionary deal and then later as the water gets low it becomes more of a subtle twitching bite and that's by far my favorite because it's more like hunting at that point you're looking for a certain fish
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool, too, when you get to see them and you watch them, they're kind of like backpedaling, 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 and then they eat. Yes, yes,
1: that's that's the best part. I jokingly say that you got to have ice running in your veins because they will come out and they will headstand on the fly. And I've seen them headstand up to 20 seconds before they ever take it. A few years back, I remember I found this fish that was pretty large, and, and these big fish, you know, you, the 18, 20-inch fish, they're they're really old. They grow pretty slow, so they're fairly old, so they've been in the system for a while, and they get pretty knowledgeable as to what's going on, and I found this fish, and, and I wanted to go back and catch it, and we set the boat up, upriver of it, and made a 45-degree shot down to it so that it had no idea that we were there, and the fish comes up. And it headstands on the fly, and it literally pushed it with its nose twice. And the third time, it ate it.
0: Yeah, doesn't get much better than that, does it? No, no. That's that's the most addictive part of it to me. Yeah. So uh, to to back up just a little bit, how old were you when you started working in the shop?
1: My first job at Unicoy, my mom would drive me to the shop, and I would pick up. The trash on the river and clean the trouts. I probably was fifteen.
0: Yeah, very cool. And so, you know how um, how how has your career at Unicoi kind of evolved over the years?
1: Yeah, so uh, started out with just guiding um, and mostly wade fishing for trout, and then did that for a few years, and then I got an opportunity to move into the retail side and come on as the assistant manager and during that time I was still guiding and working retail and um got to dabble a little bit into the purchasing side of the business and and did that for a while and and then uh John who was the manager for a long time he retired and I took over his position as manager.
0: Uh super cool and you know I always like to ask this uh question of fly shop folks cuz I always believe every shop kind of has its own personality. And mm-hmm. uh, I was kind of curious how you would describe Unicoy Outfitters' uh, shop personality and kind of what makes it unique.
1: Yeah, so kind of our tagline would be that we're friendly local experts. And so many times I've been in stores that, you know, not here in this area, but traveling. And uh, you walk in and people acknowledge that you walk in the door, but, you know, they they don't show as much interest um, you know, you don't start small talk of, you know, hey, you going fishing, where have you been fishing? And kind of maybe lend a little bit of advice. So the one thing that we always try to do is um to try to be approachable to people and uh also go out of our way to help them and whether that be through knowledge or, or product or whatever it may be, um, but just to help them have a better day on the water.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A little, little Southern hospitality goes a long way, right? Yeah, it does. I mean,
1: honestly, for the guys working behind the counter, it helps the day pass a lot quicker because you're engaged with the customer. And, um, and so it makes everything go by a lot quicker. So I like that part. I like to be able, you know, people ask me all the time, they're like, well, do you like the guy anymore? Do you like the retail more? And honestly, I like the mix of the two. Um, I did the guiding thing full time and, and, you know, there's, it's a, it's a busy season to where you make all of your money in a few short months. And, and mm-hmm. during those months, you're really grinding. Um, and then I've been on the retail side too. And I like the mix, you know, I, I like for people to come in the store and get to interact with them and engage with them and talk to them about, you know, whether they're going fishing, whether they've have been fishing and then I like to be able to to take people fishing, too, as well. Um, I jokingly say that that's kind of like a day off when I get to lace up the boots and go fishing.
0: Yeah, it's kind of neat, too, because, I mean, at least kind of from on the other side, I mean, I really enjoy, you know, building those relationships over time, right, with people in shops. And, you know, kind of to your point, like, you know, you now have friends were started out as guide clients. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing too, in kind of this day of e-commerce is that it kind of makes shops sticky for people, you know
1: yeah, I mean, honestly, for us as brick and mortar, that's all we have is is the experience that we offer when when customers come through the door you know in in this market, everybody who sells product signs an agreement to sell it at the same price and and so really all you have that differentiates you is your service
0: yeah absolutely. And I mean, and you're close to Atlanta, so that makes it even more challenging because you got so many more people and you know more shops and all that kind of stuff too. but but you know, Jake, one to me one of the great things kind of about the the southeast and North Georgia in particular is you have such an incredibly diverse fishery, right? So I mean you know you've got so many other angling opportunities in addition to trout and shoal bass. and I was wondering if you could kind of share those with our listeners in case they don't know about all of them. and then I'm pretty sure you guys guide for all of them too, right?
1: We got for most of them. And if we don't, then we know somebody who does. Um, And so that's the good thing about everybody here in the industry is, is, you know, everybody gets along really well and everybody helps each other out. And, you know, I just think that's part of being in the South. So even if we don't specialize in something, we know somebody who does. Um, But to get back to your question, um, you know, we've got stripers, landlocked stripers. You know, there's guys who target them on the lakes. Uh, We do some striper trips in the spring up the river, uh, fishing out of a jet boat. Uh, That would probably be my second favorite thing to do. (laughs) Um, We have uh, really good spotted bass fisheries around the area. And these, so we have um, highland herring fisheries. Uh, We have really good spotted bass fishing in both lakes and rivers. Um, we've got a pretty decent carp fishery for, you know, site fishing for carp. Um, we have some pretty cool, uh, black bass around the area. So there's, we have, uh, strains of red eye bass. So right here in our general area, we have Bartram's bass and Chattahoochee bass, which would be a, a strain of a red eye. And then we also have, um you know, I guess you could classify it as all the trash fish, the gar and the pickerel and and all those toothy critters too as well.
0: Yeah, got to get those big nylon uh, braided uh, flies for those guys, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. The guys at the store have kind of figured out a way to to hook them on a hook. So it's a pretty neat deal on how they're doing it. But I I know for the longest time, you know, the rope is – it works well, but it's really hard to, you. it's hard to get it out of their mouth. Um. So the way they're doing it with the hook is, is pretty unique.
0: Yeah. And they've got pretty hard mouths too, don't they?
1: Oh, it's solid bone. Yeah. Solid bone.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, and if, if none of that stuff floats your boat, um, I know you guys have kind of recently added destination travel to your program. You want to let us know a little bit about that?
1: yeah yeah so we've done some destination travel. we've been to uh brazil and and um a few other places in south america and Jimmy's going uh he's got a dorado trip uh next april um that that'd kind of be our biggest thing coming up for destination um which is something that I've always wanted to do. I haven't been able to do it yet, but hope to one
0: day. Yeah, it's pretty neat. I know that's with the set guys, and I had Gustavo on, and I think I was telling you uh, before we started recording that uh, I probably fished with him. I, I hate to even say it, almost twenty years ago, but uh, kind of brought him on to talk about Dorado stuff. And I mean, they've got it pretty dialed in down there, so I would imagine uh, it's going to be a pretty awesome opportunity.
1: Oh, I'm sure it's going to be an incredible trip.
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like they have the they kind of rotate you through, and so you get to fish the big river. With it, and you get the air conditioning, and then you're going to get to go kind of back in the woods and kind of do for the almost like where you get to go to the nurseries and catch those baby tarpon. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, I know those guys are hospitality is awesome, so I would imagine it's a horrible way to spend seven to ten days.
1: <laughs> no, I think it's a lot of flavors of ice cream, and it's just a matter of which one you want. So I, I think it's great, you know, it, it's always incredible to travel to these other places and just see how they operate and how great their hospitality is and, and how they do things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I know, you know, we're kind of marching into the middle of October, so it's kind of that kickoff for Southern trout season, but do you have any kind of upcoming events in the shop or kind of in the area you want to share with our listeners?
1: Yeah. So next big thing for us on the, would, would be, uh the atlanta fly fishing show is coming up the first of february um, that's the next big event for us we just had a fall kickoff a couple weeks ago um and then we'll be having a spring kickoff too as well where we kind of have a gathering at the shop and uh, have some demo days and have some on the water instruction and whatnot and, and just gets people kind of fired up for fishing season as we transition into that
0: yeah, I tell you, that Atlanta fly fishing show has really, really taken off. I mean, I, I would say it's probably it's probably after Edison in Denver, probably the largest show that Ben and Chuck put on.
1: Yeah, um, last year, you know, everybody was kind of scared after COVID what was going to happen as far as how, how people were going to turn out. And it um, had great attendance last year. And so I imagine that this year it'll, it'll be, Pretty close.
0: Yeah, pretty funny having to fight all those little kids at the Lego thing that was next door.
1: <laughs> I didn't get to experience that, but I did hear about it.
0: Yeah. Just made it hard to get lunch, that's all.
1: Yeah.
0: And uh, but it was good. And then you know, watching little kids have meltdowns and you're like, dude, I'm going back in the fly fishing show. <laughs> yeah,
1: I get to watch that every day. So
0: Yeah. I know how it is. It's all good stuff. Well, Jake, before I let you go this evening, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: Uh, Yeah, so just to kind of point a few things out, um, some people may not be aware, but we actually recently picked up two pieces of private water back in the spring, and uh, they've both been fishing really well. So we've got um, a little bit different uh, experiences to offer to our clientele. And, um, you know, I think uh, early on, you know, people are always looking for knowledge and, and what may be going on in the area um and one of our staff members jeff durniak puts out a weekly fishing report um on our social media and on our blog every week that's full of intel from that week so it's a really fresh report um west puts in a, a hot fly list there for the week all of our guides are reporting in and it's it's got fishing intel from all across the state so really good place to if you're thinking about going fishing that weekend or you just want to know what's going on in the area to gain some knowledge and, and have a better grasp on what's happening once you get out on the water
0: yeah i, I tell you too because i do fishing reports with various guides and shops i think if you go back and you like listen for an entire year you'll learn a ton about the fishery too
1: oh no question no question and that was one thing that that we wanted to do when, we built the blog is we have archives over on one side of the webpage, which gives you the ability to go back and look year after year of kind of what's happening.
0: Yeah. It's, I mean, I've learned a ton just recording them and you know, you want to let folks know. So you've got the shop in Helen and then you've got the country store. You want to let folks know where they're located hours and all that kind of good stuff.
1: Yeah. So the shop in Helen is right just south of town on main street. It's 7280 South main street is the address. That store is open seven days a week from 8 to 5. And then the Unicoi Outfitters General Store in Clarksville is right in downtown in the square. Uh, The address there is 1420 Washington Street. And that store is open Monday through Saturday, 8 to 5.
0: Got it. And if folks wanted to find a website and social media and, you know, follow the shop and all the fishing adventures, where should they go?
1: Yes, you can find us on uh, Instagram and Facebook to be our two biggest social platforms that we put out intel on. Um, and then also on our website, which also has a link to our blog, too, as well.
0: Awesome. And I'll drop all that stuff in the show notes for everybody. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Jake, I appreciate you uh, not going home to two little kids <laughs> and, <laughs> and sitting in the shop and recording with me this evening. And uh, look forward to crossing paths with you soon.
1: You bet. I had a great time. Thank you.
0: You bet. Take care. Folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Tight lines, everybody.